Okay, today is June the 30th, last day of the month, 2011. So I might as well do this now so I won't get the date wrong next time. That's really not much of a guarantee, but it helps. Seems like about every week I pull off another month's calendar. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your word, for giving us everything that we need in order to grow up and be overcomers in the devil's world. We live in enemy territory, but we are on the victor's side. We look forward to the Nike Awards. We look forward to so many great things that you've promised that still lay ahead. And yet we face the daily grind here on planet Earth and we have aches and pains and troubles and issues. But because of your grace and because of your plan, we can rise above it all. We can maintain our contentment, our composure, our stability. It's all because of your grace and your word. So we pray that you will help us to focus this evening For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you might be glad to know that I didn't see the news tonight. (laughs) My blood pressure is normal. I guess it's normal. Whatever it is, it is. And so we can get right into our scriptures. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. You know, I believe before it's over with, I'm going to spend more time in chapter 3 than chapter 2. And chapter 2 was the big guns, I thought, of 2 Thessalonians. And it was. It has to do with prophecy, the day of the Lord, and a lot of the timing of the rapture is there. However, you cannot discount any part of God's Word, including 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Everywhere we go, there's more to learn, isn't there? So, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8, I'll put it up on the board if you want to see it there as well. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right for this or to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. The Thessalonian church was a great church. Paul didn't spend a lot of time there when he established the church. And then when he was away from it, he was concerned about them, and then he found out that they were doing pretty good. But every church has to be forever vigilant because Satan and his minions love to cause confusion and let some type of mental attitude sin, some kind of disruption cause a division in the church. 
And in this case, even though the Thessalonian church was an example to other churches, they still had issues. A couple of the issues that they had was because they understood about the rapture. Paul explained to them it had not occurred. They could calm down and that all of the false teaching and the counterfeit letter that they received was to no avail. Still, there were those who were treating the rapture in a fashion that no believer should, and yet there's a lot of them who do. They thought, well, we understand it could happen at any day, and some of them, some of them thought it could happen within the week or within the month. So they became lazy. They quit working. They quit paying their bills. Well, why, why would you want to pay your bills? Uh, Christ is going to come. And unfortunately, there are believers today that have that same attitude. It just wasn't, what was it, a couple of weeks ago when some, some guy said that, well, the rapture is going to occur and they got a lot of coverage and all he does is muddy the water. But some people get really in tune with that. They don't plant trees because why plant a tree? I mean, even a fruit tree probably won't see the fruit. Some of them will max out their credit cards. Uh, some, some people don't need much encouragement to do that because they think, well, who cares? The Lord is coming. And we're going to see that that is not the right motivation. Now, the fact that Jesus Christ could come before this message is over is a motivational force that should be in your own lives. In fact, there is a specific reward, a crown that is offered to those who anxiously await our Lord's return. All these are correct motivational forces. But you have to be careful that you don't slip over into the wacko category to where uh, there are people that have, it's been reported that uh, they've got on top of housetops with a sheet and with their hands up to the sky were waiting on the Lord. And that's bizarre. I mean, why get on top of the house? Can't the Lord go another eight or ten feet or whatever it is and, and get you there? And why the white sheet? Don't you think that uh, the Lord is able to provide some kind of robe, some kind of clothing, something for you? I mean, these people aren't thinking clearly. And, of course, they always give those who are anti-God, anti-grace, and anti-the-Bible, anti-Christians more fuel to disparage us and categorize us all as a bunch of, um, well, just wackos. So we, get it, we, we understand a lot of things right off the bat when we're dealing with the Thessalonian church. And this is one of the better churches. When you get into the Corinthian church, oh my. It, it, they had everything. They had everything from legalism to paganism being brought out in the church. All right, for our text here, we've already gone over uh, this for the most point, uh, part, uh, some of these two verses anyway. Um, those who communicate the Word of God have the right to be supported financially by those who receive benefit from their ministry. And we went to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 through 14. Uh, this is, in no way am I soliciting any 
anything with regards to remuneration as far as this church is concerned. I, the only time that I can recall I've ever talked about money is when the Scriptures were talking about money, about support here. And so when the Scriptures deal with it, whatever it is, I'm going to teach it and teach it as I see uh, the Bible expounding it. Then we went to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7 through 9. Paul clearly asserted that it's proper for a minister to receive support from the congregation to which he ministers. He greatly accepted support from the churches he had established earlier and considered their gifts a form of participation in his ministry. There were two churches that he did not take support from, and that was Corinth and that was Thessalonica. Those two churches he did not take support, and it was for a particular reason. Because these were, there, there were people there that would accuse Paul of telling them what they wanted to hear just so that he could receive funds from them. That he was an ear tickler and that they, they were always berating him. I can't even imagine the pressure that Paul must have been under every single day. It's very nice for me to come to a church where I know just about everyone. People are positive. They accept me as their authority in teaching the Word of God. Paul didn't have that. He would go into the synagogues and he would expound upon Jesus Christ has come, the Messiah has already been here. He paid the price for sin. And all he got was criticism and rebuke and everywhere he went. I mean, it must have been so refreshing for him to see a glimmer of positive volition here or there. I think that's one reason he loved the, Thessalon uh, the Thessalonian believers so much because they were indeed positive and he didn't spend a long time there, but they did get it. In Philippians 4, verses 14 through 19, indicates that Paul received financial support from other churches while he was supporting, uh, while he was supporting himself when in Thessalonica. Last time I went into some detail about what it's like to be a, a full-time pastor and yet have to have a sad side job to support yourself. Extremely difficult. So this is what Paul was doing. He was a tent maker. And he would ply his trade. According to this, he was busy night and day. He was either providing for himself or else he was teaching others. And he even received some remuneration from churches that he had already established. And of course, small churches, when they first get started, usually can't support a pastor. So he has to have a, a, a part-time job. I don't want anyone to ever think less of a pastor because he is not full-time in the ministry in the sense that the church is not supporting him full-time. Don't ever think that discount that pastor in any way. In some regard, he should be esteemed more highly because he is he's doing double duty. And I've, I've seen it. When I've talked to people, when I was, uh, I drove a school bus, I was a substitute teacher, I did various things. And people would ask me, uh, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a pastor. Oh, really? Well, where, where's your, what, what, what denomination? 
I said, well, we're a country Bible church. We're not a denomination. Well, what do you teach? I said, I teach the Bible. I teach God's Word. Oh, well, and you know this is... How, many, how, many, how big is your church? Well, it's about 30 people. And all of a sudden you can see them. You know, oh, okay. Well, you know, you can see it in their eyes. You don't really count. And then, well, are you in the full-time ministry? Well, I have another job. And I just went down another rock. You know, each time. 30 people. Poop! Discounted about 20%. Uh, you're not full-time. You have to support yourself. Ratchet down to here. And I'm telling you that if you're going to ratchet someone like that down, ratchet Paul down also because he was part-timer for quite a while in two churches. Just so I don't think any of you would do that, but there are some churches and some Christians that go around like this all the time. They're so credential-minded. You know, I don't know. Uh, I've, I've counseled other uh, pastors or at least candidates to be pastors before as to whether they go to seminary or not. And the trend these days are fewer pastors are going to seminaries because the seminaries are so pathetic. And it's better to... Actually, what's happening, I guess you could put it this way, that pastors are being trained in the churches by the pastors that are there. And that's the way it started in the first century church. Now, I'm not disparaging all seminaries, or as Pastor Joe Griffin says, cemeteries. Um, but it's not the credentials. There are people who have tons of credentials, and they can't teach, or else they really don't know what they're talking about. That's right. There are people who have doctor degrees, and they don't even know how... They couldn't give the gospel to someone. And so... Every pot has to sit on its own bottom. Every pastor has to deal with the cards that he has. And there are some who go to seminary and they get out and they got a doctor's degree and there's people clamoring, oh, you know, he's got his choice of 100 churches. And then there are others that they get out, of a, out from a particular pastor where they were ordained from a church. And they don't have a whole lot to choose from as far as a lot of people, a lot of churches wanting them because they don't have all the big credentials. But the Lord takes care of all that. Do you know that? The last ordination I did was Cliff Beveridge, and that was from Austin Bible Church. Bob Bolander was the pastor. And when he was ordained, there were some doctrinal churches that were wanting him. He didn't know exactly what to do. And... A few months passed, and he called me. He said, can I come talk to you? I said, sure. What do you want to talk about? He said, starting a church. He said, you're the only one that I know that started a church the way you did without, a, without another mother church behind them. And I, I was able to help him because I had to learn the hard way. No one had ever explained to me, this is the way you go through it. This is the way you do it. I was just copying uh, mainly Baraka Church because that's the church I was ordained from. And it, it takes at least, I think, a decade before a pastor can really get his feet under him and be his own man, so to speak. But each circumstance is different. But don't discount people, any pastor, because they're not full-time. They have to support themselves. Now, here's some scriptures for you that we substantiate that those who communicate the word 
are to be supported by those that are ministered to. Galatians 6.6, 6, And let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. 1 Timothy 5.17-18, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, this does have a financial meaning behind it because verse 18 says, For the Scripture says, going back to the Old Testament, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. We went over those last time about the ox and the threshing. Luke chapter 10, verse 5 through 8. And whatever house you enter first, say, Peace be to this house. This is uh, the Lord giving directions. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you, that is your peace, and stay in that house eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house in whatever city you enter, and they receive you. Eat what is set before you. And he doesn't have to feel guilty about it because he is a laborer, just like a person that has a vineyard. He works the vineyard. He's, he can uh, live off of the land or, or a shepherd. Uh, he takes care of the sheep, and he gets the, the milk from the sheep and the wool and so forth. But in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. They went, went through a lot of these verses with regards to being an example. And I used to think, well, it doesn't really mean that the communicator of the word is to be an example. Just to mimic his positive volition. But remember all the scriptures we went through? We went through about 10 or 12 of them. And anyone that is in a high-profile position, and if you are a parent, you are in a high-profile position of all the little rugrats that are there. <laughs> I know they're not rugrats. Sometimes they are, though, aren't they? For even when, you, uh, when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Wow. <laughs> Does Paul pull any punches here? Evidently, there was a problem with a misconception about the rapture and working even when Paul was with the believers in Thessalonica. We know from the syntax and grammar of this verse that that was the case. He's not just saying this in case there might be a problem arise. The problem was already there. So again, we're looking at, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. Now, the phrase, we used to give you this order, is parangelo, P-A-R-A-G-G-E-L-L-O. It's a verb. It's the imperfect active indicative. We don't see the imperfect a lot, but the imperfect means that there, it's an ongoing action in the past that is ongoing. It keeps going. It always reflects back to the past. And as the perfect tense is a completed action in the past and the results go on, the imperfect 
is an uncompleted action in the past. In other words, it, it, it wasn't completed. It's ongoing. So that means that he gives this, this order uh, over and over more than once. It means, uh, parangelo means to pass on an announcement, hence to give the word to someone nearby to advance an order or charge or command. So this is uh, a command, even though it's in the indicative mood here, we'll see in the other words that it is uh, a command to do this. It's an order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Now, the if there is a first-class conditional clause, and that means that there were believers in Thessalonica who were not working. If, and it's true. It's not if anyone will, maybe yes, maybe no. No, first-class means this was the case. There were people who were not working. I already went over a little bit about the fact that there were those who thought that the Lord could come any moment and they just quit their jobs. And as we go into the next verses, which we probably won't get to tonight, but we'll see that when you don't have a job, you get into trouble a lot of times. What is the old saying? Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Is that how it goes? And that is very true. And they did get into trouble. So, it's first class condition and they were not working. Then we have, if anyone will not work, the will there is fellow, T-H-E-L-L-O. It's a verb. It's a present active indicative. They continued to not have a will to work or to refuse to work. They produced the action. Indicative mood means reality. It wasn't just a potential. It doesn't say how many of them there were, but there was a number of them that just would not work. Now, a fellow means to wish, to will, to wish, to desire, implying active volition and purpose. This refers to people who are able but consistently not willing to work or provide for themselves and their families. Now, you can imagine where I'm, I'm going to go next. I've been on the Internet some today. <laughs> oh, boy, that, you know, the Internet is a two-edged sword. There's a lot of junk on there, but there's a lot of really good things, too where you used to have to get in your car and drive down the library and go through the Dewey Decimal Point system. The little, remember the little cards? I, I, I used to, when I was small, uh, everyone tried to encourage me to read. I hated to read. I remember they finally, uh, they, they took me to the uh, library and they said, you can't leave this library until you get a book and you've got to read it. And I oh, man. Uh, so I looked through, and it was uh, George Washington Carver and what he did with peanuts. Uh, yeah, and that was the book that I got. And I, w I went home, and all I can remember now is he did about a zillion things with peanuts, and he was a pretty squared-away guy. Uh, that was an improvement on a book that they bought me, which you can imagine how well-read this book was. It was called Elbows Off the Table. <laughs> They were trying to make me a gentleman, see. And so it was all about etiquette. I didn't even get through the table of contents on that one. But <laughs> I was taken to a big library over in the Heights. I don't know the name of it. It had big oak trees. I used to like to go in there because it had a smell to it. You ever gone to a library and you could 
there were so many books. I guess they were old and old people. I don't know what it was, but it had a great smell to it. And that's about all I got out of that library was the big trees and the, and the smell. But uh, we don't have to do that now. We go on the Internet and boom, 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 it's all right there. So I'm going to go to that in a minute, but first of all, we need to quit, uh, finish this exegesis. So we have, if you will not work, neither let him eat. Now, the word work here is ergazomai, E-R-G-A-Z-O-M-A-I, and it's an infinitive, and it's the uh, present middle infinitive. Now, we don't have a middle voice in the English uh, but remember, the, the middle voice is reflexive. It means you're going to be affected by the things that you do. It's, it's reflexive. It comes back on you. It can either be for the good or it can be for the bad. And the great majority of the time, it's a blessing. For instance, when you pray, a lot of times the word pray uh, is in the middle voice because when you pray for someone, not only is it beneficial to them, but it's beneficial to you also. We're commanded to pray. And when you obey that, and you go through the right procedure in the right way, you're benefited. And that's in the middle voice. This is one of those unusual times when it's the middle voice. It's not blessing that you're getting, but something in the negative sense. It says, Ergonzomai is uh, the present middle. It means to work, perform by labor, to do, produce. The present tense means to keep on working, and the middle voice means that one is affected by the choice he or she makes by not working. Now, there's a Greek word in here called medice, and that is a big, fat negative there. So by not working, they're going to be affected by that. One of the things that they're going to, one of the things that's going to happen is they're going to get chewed out by Paul. And I don't imagine that was a pleasant experience, even if it was in a letter. I don't know how they did this. How they, if, I think that they, they would read the letter, and then they, they would even read it out loud to the church. And they would circulate these epistles throughout the churches and so forth. Now, if you were one of these people who were no longer working, and you were going out and being a busybody and getting into trouble, and they're reading this letter to the church, don't you know that there was this t temptation for... Some believer to go while it was being read. And the pastor would say, eyes forward. <laughs> I don't know. I, I imagine that happened. So we have our God's I, infinitive, present, middle. That the present tense, of course, means they work to keep on working. So, neither let him eat. If he does not work, we have neither let him eat. And the word eat here, it's actually a verb. It's S-T-O, E-S-T-H-I-O. It's a verb, present active imperative. So here we have the imperative. If you do not work, you will not eat. Have you ever thought about in God's design and His plan, if we didn't have to eat, how, how things would be so much different? Think all the restaurants <laughs> go out of business. But just think about it. One of the biggest motivating forces in working is so that we can eat. I mean, there's one of the, probably the most powerful motivation to get out there and work is when you get hungry. You've got to eat. You have to produce something in order to either 
grow the food yourself or have some kind of job in order to get paid to buy the food and so forth. So it's, it's a, a great motivational force to do this. So it's to, to eat, consume food, spoken both of men and animals. This is a command not to eat if one did, does not work. Here's a principle for you. Charity is a biblical principle that we should follow. Government welfare is not. There is a huge difference between people who cannot work and those who will not work. Remember, I'm always stressing discernment. And this is where we have to rightly divide the word of truth. I have uh, several quotes here that I found. I thought some of them are somewhat informing. In, uh, uh, gives, you, gives us information. Welfare programs were first introduced to America in the 1930s under the, under the name Aid to Dependent Children. In the 1930s, remember the Great Depression? And so this is what kind of prompted the New Deal, Roosevelt, and the next thing you know, we, there starts to be welfare. Many felt that this did not encourage the union of family, and in the 1960s, the name was changed to Aid to Families with Dependent Children, AFDC, which, by the way, is still in effect. In 1996, business closures related to the economic crisis of 2008 will significantly increase the number of Americans seeking welfare. This is the primary argument of legislatures, uh, legislators who want to bail out large companies before they fall, fail. So one, uh, at least one of the ingredients in this whole bailout procedure that we went through uh, a couple of years ago, was that one of their arguments was if we don't bail out Wall Street and the bankers and such, then the government is going to have to pay out more in welfare benefits. The idea was that if you, if, if you keep the big companies, the bankers and Wall Street and all this going, there's going to be more jobs, which means there's going to be less paid out in welfare so that was one of the uh, things which is uh, strange to me. Yes? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I just quoted that. I don't know why it's 1996. Uh, evidently there could have been a pattern or something that took place then or maybe something was happened then that uh, affected the closures. <laughs> well, here's, forget the date. What I want you to get out of this is that it was a prime reason for them to bail out the people because welfare was at least one issue, evidently a significant issue. Uh, yes, hands uh, no, behind you. No, behind Kelly. Kelly was doing her hair, and you had your hand right up behind her. I didn't know she had her hand up, too. Do you have your hand up? Okay, what? Oh, that might have been a typo? 
We can fix that. Okay? And this is what I want to do with this. What is this? This is what I want to do with the 1996 part. Okay. Are y'all happy now? <laughs> All right. Well, it, uh, this is good. It shows me y'all are paying attention. Okay. Uh, they want to keep Americans working to avoid paying them on the other end via welfare programs and other forms of government assistance. Blue-collar workers argue that it is a case of concerns for Wall Street versus the concerns for Main Street. Y'all probably heard some of those arguments. This is uh, a, a little bit of something written by uh, David Boaz, the growing welfare state. I have the, if y'all want, I have the website if you ever want to check these out. Unemployment is low. The stock market is booming. We've had 10 years of welfare reform. And America's welfare state is bigger than ever, reports the Associated Press. The number of families receiving cash benefits from welfare has plummeted since the government imposed time limits on the payments a decade ago. But other programs for the poor, including Medicaid, food stamps, and disability benefits, are bursting with new enrollees. The result, according to an Associated Press analysis, nearly one in six people rely on some form of public assistance, a larger share than at any time since the government started measuring decade... Uh, two decades ago. So something is not kosher there. Note that this story only looks at the welfare state for the poor. Far more than one in six Americans are dependent on such government programs as Social Security, Medicare, unemployment, compensation, and so on. Presidential ca candidates should be asked whether they think it's a it's bad that almost 50 million Americans are on welfare or welfare-related programs. What would they do to reduce dependency? And how long can a nation remain free if half its citizens are dependent on government handouts? Those are pretty good questions. 50 million. These are a few... Well, this is... Uh, there's one county, L.A. County, spends $600 million on welfare for illegal immigrants. For the second consecutive year, taxpayers in the single U.S. county will dish out more than half a billion dollars just to cover the welfare and food stamp costs of illegal immigrants. Los Angeles County, the nation's most populous, may be in the midst of a dire financial crisis, but somehow there are plenty of funds for illegal aliens. In January alone, anchor babies born to the county's illegal immigrants collected more than $50 million in welfare benefits. You all know what anchor babies are, right? Everybody knows? An anchor baby is when you have two illegal immigrants that have a child born in the U.S. According to our laws at present, they are considered American citizen, and that means their families can stay and so forth. That's an anchor baby. At that rate, the cash-strapped county will pay around $600 million this year to provide illegal aliens 
offspring with food stamps and other welfare perks. The fact is that despite this astronomically escalating number and cost of government social programs, from 90 million in 19, uh, excuse me, 90 billion in 1970 to 300 billion in 1980. See, these are fairly old. I got uh, I've, these quotes that I have here. I got off of my Libronics 7700 illustrations is the name of the book. So this was probably in the 80s when this was written. Anyway, these programs from uh, 90 billion to 300 billion. They have failed in their objective while at the same time threatening to bankrupt the nation. More than one-third of American households are now receiving some form of governmental welfare. One-third of the households. And that was, I don't know how long ago, quite a while, probably uh, 15 years or so. Despite the billions of dollars spent, the percentage of American households below the poverty level has remained virtually constant at 12% from 1968 through 1979. Yet in 1979, the total amount spent to help the poor, if distributed directly to the poor, was enough to elevate every officially poor family 30% above the poverty line. In other words, there's a lot of money. I think a lot of are scriptural, by especially with regard to the author answers so don't think of that. And their uh, aid to others. He says, welfare for the poor and necessary. Christian churches, individual and church as a group, as individual. The function of poor needs because the government intruded where it is intruding does not mean that we no longer have that reason. Director of Christ and is editor and publisher of the News Times. He insists that the purpose of welfare, the needs of others, is to prove our God's love to us. The effects, he says, of sharing with others in need out of God's love are threefold. A sense, and then you have, uh, first of all, a sense of fellowship and belonging, 2 Corinthians 9.13. A stronger family unit, First Timothy five eight, and a high standard of work which prohibits laziness. And look at that verse. Look familiar? Second Thessalonians three nine and ten. Furthermore, he points out that welfare must be voluntary to express any kind of caring. See, that's one of the things when you the, the government welfare programs. There's nothing voluntary in the government. It's always that's the thing. If, if, can you imagine what the change would be? And I understand certain things have to be uh, not voluntary. But, well, I'll just go on. Such biblical welfare stands opposed to government welfare, which Burkett believes has disastrous effects. He observes, once the government, not invo once the government got involved in social programs, Welfare became a political tool. I don't need to expand on that, do I? Okay. The effects of government welfare are almost the opposite of the effects of biblical welfare listed above. And the results will be permanent dependence and poverty. They wonder why do we have more and more poverty and they poured billions upon billions to try to address this issue 
You know, here it is right here. What they've created is permanent dependency. We have now third generation of people who know nothing other than going once a month and getting their welfare check by the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. With the best of intentions, our welfare system traps people at the lowest economic le level by indiscriminate giving. They don't, know, they don't know all the particulars. You can fill out a form. It doesn't really tell you the circumstances. And people can lie. Burkett indicates the Christian church, excuse me, indicts the Christian church for abdicating its responsibility in biblical welfare. I would rather say benevolence. Benevolent giving I like better than welfare. But anyway, he says the truth is that Christians are doing a miserable job of caring for the physical needs of the poor. Christians in America have the resources to do at least ten times what we are presently doing for the poor with little or no alteration of lifestyles. In concluding the article, he challenges Christians to become involved once again in biblical welfare and he gives a suggested plan of action. His program is practical. A related article by Elmer L. Towns, How Social is the Gospel, follows Burkett's article in the journal. You know, just, just to uh, let you all know, the Country Bible Church has helped people in need uh, many times throughout the years. Uh, not too long ago, there was a house that burned down. An entire, entire, entire family uh, was, was homeless, and we heard about it, and we sent a sum of money, and there was collections made, and we sent uh, household goods and so forth to these people. We're, we are ready to help. And these, we didn't even know these people. Uh, they, weren't, they, they weren't members of this church or anything, but we heard a need, and that's the way I like to see a church operate is not just throw their money out at some big organization, but when they have needs in the community that they can address those needs. And let me tell you, that goes a hundredfold more when we're talking about someone in our own midst. When we're talking about fellow brothers and sisters that are members of this family, this church family, all stops should be pulled out in order to help them. And I can tell you, our record, as far as I know, has been sterling there. Where there's someone who had a death, someone who has uh, been unable to get out and get about and so forth. Uh, the, the ladies have, have fixed food and delivered it and uh, cut grass for people. Anything that can happen. But we need to double our efforts. We need to be very vigilant. If we can't do that, and we go around and we quote all this doctrine to people, and yet we can't help our own people with the physical needs that they have, then we ring hollow like a cymbal or a gong. It's just nothing. I'm not, I'm not rebuking. I'm just emphasizing the need for that. It's already happening, but we don't want to slack off at all. God has blessed us with the finances to be able to help people. But it's just not helping people financially. It's helping them with food and clothing and, and errands and whatever else they need. We, we want to do that individually. We want, we want to do it corporately. 
Here's something on welfare spending. Since 1970, social welfare spending has risen 127%. Now, I think this was written in the 80s. To a staggering annual total of $331 billion for federal, state, and local governments. It's outstripped just about all other outliers. You know, that's close to a billion dollars a day. Defense spending was greater than social cost in the mid-1950s. Now it's only one-fourth as big as welfare. You understand what that's saying? Our national fourth of what we spend on welfare. And it leaped to duration. In less land. Thank you for praying.